Welcome to the film show on KBU. I'm S.W. Conser, and I'm joined live in the studio today by a celebrated film historian who's uh, recently re- relocated from San Francisco to Portland. Uh, Elliot Levine, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. And uh, so we'll be asking you all about the new series that you're curating, Cold War Shivers, sci-fi scare films of the 1950s, in just a few minutes. But first, I am joined by Maria Allred. Maria is a uh, first-time feature filmmaker. Uh, Her debut is called The Texture of Falling. It's playing at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, their empirical theater. Uh, Yeah, and it's actually, you can catch it this evening, Thursday the 28th. There's more information at omzi.edu. And co-producer Damien Girardi is also here in the studio. Maria and Damien, it's great to have you on the show. Thank Thanks you so much us. for having us. We're so excited to be here. Well, the two of you wear many hats. You're actors as well as filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Damien, you're well known for your art photography. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, before I got into film, that was what I was doing. I was shooting portraits of rock stars and artists for magazines. Yeah, and so you're really tied in with the local art community. You know, it's not yeah. just uh, musicians, but also people in all kinds of areas of art, underground and above ground, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Uh, a, lot, a lot of different models and artists in the area. Uh, lots of people that you probably know. One of my favorites is Crystal Zingsheim. She and I have been collaborating on um, still photography projects for years. But uh, I took that and crossed over to this project with Maria. Yeah, and uh, Maria, your roles on set here have included writer, director, producer, editor, and cinematographer. Uh, and prior to directing this feature, you you made a number of short films, which have premiered on Oregon Public Broadcasting, uh, including a profile of the one and only Noah Mickens, right. uh, ringmaster of Portland's Wanderlust mm. Circus. Yes. And Noah, if you're listening, you better go to the theater tonight and watch my film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, many listeners uh, might recognize Noah from his appearance in the famous Portlandia debut video, Dream of the 90s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you should know him more from my film, my portrait piece on him. Noah Mickens, A Modern Ringmaster. Yes, yes. That's a, that's about a 10-minute film that's actually available on YouTube, I believe. Yeah, right? YouTube and uh, Vimeo. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the texture of falling. Tell us about how this came about and uh, you know, and how it made it all the way to the big, big screen of yeah, OMSI. Yeah, the biggest in Oregon. Um, well, like a lot of things come about with artists, it came from a personal experience of loss and love. And I was left running like a wild animal, <laughs> desperate through the night. And what can you do as an artist but, you know, channel that into your work? And so I began writing a script um, from a personal loss. And I had so much uh, fire inside of me uh, that I think just took me all the way to writing the script, to getting the team together, to putting it all and, and then, you know, after a while, that fire kind of dims down and you have to use something else. And so I just had serious perseverance and tenacity and and wasn't going to give up until I got it where I wanted it to go, which is um, this theatrical release in New York and L.A. and San Francisco and Portland and and getting it into the world in a real way. Oh, yeah. You can never rely on a fire burning no, steadily. No, that's right. Uh, but you uh, are a big believer in process-oriented uh, filmmaking. That yeah. This is something that you... Uh, tell us about how process-oriented filmmaking had a big 
role in the texture of falling. Yeah, I will say I'm not sure if I'm a big believer in it, but I definitely used it and tried it out and saw how it worked in this film. <laughs> will I use it in the future? I don't know. Um, but process-oriented filmmaking goes beyond, and I said this before, dialogical improv, in that we're not just improving dialogue, but we're actually using the situation and the interpersonal dynamics that arise in the filmmaking process to inform the content of the story and the direction of the story. So one um, line, one thread, was full fully scripted and there's another plot, another arc that's happening that was completely unscripted except for certain points we needed to hit and themes. It was thematically, you know, uh, planned out. But other than that, we allowed our own interpersonal dynamics to inform where our story went and what our dynamic was going to be. And we also used a sub, used that in a subplot with Damien. Um, so it's a really interesting type of art that in filmmaking that conflates reality and fiction in a really real way and allows us to kind of get into the subterranean dynamics that are always existent between people and see if that creates a, a dramatic and interesting story. Does it? I don't know. Go watch the film and see. <laughs> so, so how does this sort of um, vary from, say, shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm or the films of Mike Lee where there's a, a whole lot of buy-in from... Uh, everybody involved, the actors, and there's a, a it, there's a basic structure, but it develops in the yeah. in the actors' improv. I, I know that you uh, you are a big student of Young, uh, Carl Young. Yeah. So uh, there's there must be some collective unconscious that comes into the mix there. That's right. Um, my my most of my experience with Young and Union work is with Paul Levy, who is on yesterday here on Kivu, and I've done a lot of process work for oh, about a decade, um, working with the subterranean and the unconscious, the collective unconscious, and yeah, it's fascinating, shadow work and um, archetypes and seeing how that plays into story making. It's interesting, it's fascinating, really. Mm. Um, yeah, so I don't know how it differs from, you know, career, th I haven't watched it, either of those, so I kind of just was going off my own experience and very fascinated by this premise and decided to explore it, and yeah. Well, clearly you trust your actors, and your actors trust both of you, because yeah. you brought in some great people. You brought in people who have been on big TV shows like yeah. Grimm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Benjamin Farmer, Patrick Green, Donnie Persons, wonderful actors, all of them, and Julie Webb was a non-actor who played one of the main roles, so that was part of the process, is to see what you can get from non-actors and beginner minds, too, so that was another aspect of it. Now, what are Portlanders going to see in this film? Because this is a local film <laughs> with local people, and, um, you know, it's it's intersection of love and art in yeah. a city yeah. that's been changing a lot these past few years. You're right about that. It's an intersection of love and art. And they're going to see Portland in a completely new light than it's been shown in any TV shows before. It's just beautiful. Yeah. And my, my love and passion for Portland as a place... Um, and atmospherically comes into the film really strongly. It's basically a character in the film. So they're going to see Portland in in its glory. <laughs> well, tell us about, you got any stories from the set that, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that are fun, like things that went really, that came together beautifully, just like puzzle pieces, or anything that just almost completely spun out of control, like, you know, some good, good war stories. Well, I feel like part of doing the process oriented style is that it's always on the verge of spinning out of control and uh, it creates a feeling that's really real and raw on film um, there there are lots of different times when um, you know Maria she's an idea machine she's constantly thinking about the story and 
weaving it together and unraveling different mysteries in it and um, mining different things out. And so a lot of times, you know, she will invent new things as we would go. It's part of the process. And um, part of what I thought was really cool about what we did is um, we used our initial Kickstarter money to... Tell them about Julie. Oh, yeah, I will. <laughs> Tell them about that now. Okay. Well, first of all, we... This is more interesting. It is? Yes. Well, first of all, I, well, I just wanted to finish that point is that we purchased our equipment with our Kickstarter money and that allowed us to, whenever she had a new idea, we could go out and shoot it or invent it and really create this film as if it was film a sculpture. Yeah. A, a, like, it's almost like a sculpture, you know. But um, my part, real part in the process oriented filmmaking was uh, I, I fell in love with the actress in the film. <laughs> Um, and that, that really happened and it made its way into the story in a certain way. So, um, not, not only, uh, <laughs> you, you know, we were, we were fully inviting all the dynamics in, in all the ways. And, and that was always on the brink, I think of spinning out of control, but we contained true. it into the that's art. Also channeled that. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, no spoilers, but this is definitely, uh, like a romantic drama in, in a, a very serious kind of uh, it's a psychological dry yeah, psychological drama. drama. Yeah, because yeah, it's a little bit of a mind bender. It's a riddle, so it's not a linear um, plot. It's a it's a non conventional narrative structure, that's likened to double narrative flashback. Um, that's a term coined by La Linda Aronson. Yeah, it's a riddle you have to solve. Well, it'll be interesting to see this on like the sixty foot screen at OMSI. Uh, yeah. Full full disclosure: I've moderated the occasional panel discussion at OMSI uh, whenever they've had anime festivals with Studio Ghibli films. It, there's nothing quite like watching Kiki's Delivery Service on a huge screen, some <laughs> yeah, serious huge. vertigo there. But yeah, this is great that uh, that that independent film like this is being supported in the community. Major props to the Empirical Theater yeah. and OMSI for supporting independent film. I feel like they're really holding the torch um, for these smaller pieces like ours. And I just want to say thank you to them yeah, because it. it's difficult in Portland. We have the Clinton, we have Cinema 21, but mm -hmm. they played bigger ones. And we're just these little guys trying to make our way up. And it's Art House. And the fact that Empirical supported it and we get the biggest screen in Oregon, heck yes. Props to them. Total. Yeah. So what's, what's next for both of you? Have you got any plans yet or are you just still touring? I'm, I'm starting on my second feature, oh. and um, it's going to be a mafia piece, very stylized, oh interesting, you know, coming through my lens, it's going to be pretty weird, and based on a true story from someone I met in New York, and I am also going to do a short film this summer uh, here in Portland called Aesthetic AF, and mm. so looking for actors at this time, and uh, getting that ready to put it into the festival circuit for this next festival circuit, so that's what I'm doing. Great. Uh well, uh, Maria and Demian, thanks for joining us today. Your film, The Texture of Falling, is playing at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. You can catch it this evening. Yep, Thursday. one more screening. One more screening, one more screening today. And there's more information at omzi.edu. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank for you us. so much. You're listening to The Film Show on KBU. I'm S.W. Conser, and we've been talking with filmmaker Maria Allred and producer Demian Gennardi. And now we have a clip to play for you. It's from the 1956 film Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original, and it's playing as part of the Cold War Shivers, sci-fi scare films of the 1950s series at Cinema 21. Hope you didn't forget the steaks. I never oh, forget anything. Don't worry about him. He's completely housebroken. <laughs> I need a martini, Beck. Onion or olive? Doesn't matter. I want to pour it on the charcoal. I can't get this stuff to burn. Oh, a martini isn't dry enough. I'll get you something to start it. 
For drinking purposes. You're looking ship-shape. Thank you, sir. was formed. Miles, where do they come from? I don't know. If they are seeds or seed pods, they must grow someplace on a plant, probably. And somebody or something wants this duplication to take place. But when they're finished, what happens to our bodies? I don't know. When the process is completed, probably the original is destroyed or disintegrates. Scott. No, wait! Sorry, but I take a dim view of watching my own destruction take place. That was an iconic scene from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, it starts out in a suburban backyard and goes to some very dark places. Uh, and now we're joined once again by Elliot Levine. Elliot is a film historian whose latest screening series is called Cold War Shivers, sci-fi scare films of the 1950s. Elliot, just great to have you back in the studio. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, the last time you were here, you were in the midst of curating a series at Cinema 21 called Film Noir and the Blacklist. Uh, turns out there was a lot of political ferment beneath what people think of as pulp movies. Uh, and that will always be the case. And I think the most subversive messaging coming out of Hollywood uh, was really to be found in the uh, the genre films, the low-budget films, the B-pictures, whether you're talking about film noir crime films or, in this case, um, science fiction films uh, from that period. Um, it's easy to dismiss these films. They kind of come with a fair amount of baggage, which is a little unfair. Um, but the reality is the films are an absolute uh, picture-perfect reflection uh, of the times from which they emanated. And, of course, that's referring to the fear and the concern that many, many Americans had in this period about the uncertainty of the future, either with respect to atomic power or these pesky little UFOs that seem to be <laughs> cropping up everywhere on the news. And Hollywood, in, in its true prescient uh, way, uh, seized the opportunity to really make hay with this concept and turned it into like a genre that almost went out of control. Uh, it probably became the dominant film genre of the 50s. And, of course, this course that we're doing uh, through OSU at Cinema 21 on sci-fi scare films really is a natural follow-up to the film noir blacklist class because it sort of is an offshoot of that. Uh, so much of what uh, was generated out of these films in terms of feeling of concern um, was really kind of radical, very politically charged. Uh, but most of the audience, I think, was completely unaware of this, uh, given that the films are targeted generally uh, to a, a younger audience. But of course, adults found these films readily. And the films we'll be looking at 
all of them, all six of them, really have very strong statements to make about the state of the country in, say, between 1950 and 1959. And it's, it's a bit of a revelation for a lot of people. Yeah, I attended a, a few of the screenings of Film Noir and the Blacklist, and uh, it was fascinating to take a deep dive into uh, here were these folks who were putting in, in uh, messages about racism and alienation and all of these issues that people didn't want to talk about in the House, Ameri- Un-Amer- House Un-American Activities Committee was having an issue with. And now, yeah, here's a new whole new lineup of classic low-budget excitement. You've got um, uh, this coming up, The Thing from Another World, It Came from Outer Space, Them, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, The Incredible Shrinking Man, and of course, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Right, and Body Snatchers is probably the most emblematic of all these films. It probably consolidates more specific fears and concerns into one 80-minute thrill-packed panorama uh, of any film I can actually recall. But all of them, but you know, all of them have some interesting pedigree that um, raises the bar uh, significantly in terms of their status uh, in, in, in the whole cinema firmament of great classic films, whether it's uh, Ray Harryhausen, master of special effects, innovator, uh, pioneer, you might say. His work in Earth vs. Flying Saucers is at once terrifying and stimulating uh, for an eight-year-old kid to come out of that movie convinced that a flying saucer crashed into the Washington Monument really goes a long way towards you know, convincing people that what they're watching is real. Um, Them, the film Them, is a wonderful film that really takes a very hard look at nuclear power and the consequences of science kind of gone wild uh, in an unrestricted way, if you're not really paying attention to where atomic energy is taking you, it could take you into a <laughs> nest of radioactivated mutant ants, which uh, can, it can happen. Well, it happened once. Well, we, we think of that, we might think of that as silly nowadays, but the thing was, we were being told by government officials back in the post-war days, back in the, I mean, we I wasn't, I wasn't around in the 1950s, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, people were being told, oh, a little bit of radiation might even be good for you, you know, uh, and, and nobody was, it was 20 years before people stopped, started dying off from the above ground uh, testing. Um, but yeah, so during this period of time, we have, nowadays, we have this popular image of 1950s America as a time of normalcy and prosperity, suburban family life, but there were serious racial and ethnic tensions, there were conflicts in the Korean Peninsula, which continue to this day. Uh, and, and there were some growing underground cultural movements which rejected the whole image of white bread conformism. And that is sort of at the heart of some of these pictures. Um, it's often a misconception that the 50s were sort of a happy days kind of environment with people kind of sitting by the swimming pool drinking martinis. But it was a very tense time. And the times were reflected by the, the countercultural uh, movement that was taking place, whether it was beatniks or whatever. Something was kind of not working and was making uh, the central government a little concerned. There was a tremendous amount of resistance being offered, but in a subversive way, not like today, where it's you know splashed across every TV screen 24-7. People are really aware of the things that are wrong. Uh, In the 50s, they had to gradually discover it for themselves. There wasn't really anybody there to guide them through the mess. And oftentimes, um, they were relying on 
B-movies to provide uh-huh. them with the subtext of what was going on in their lives. Whether they realized it or not, they were becoming educated to the concerns that were facing the people of that time. And most of them, I would say, if not all of them, were sort of derived from the whole Cold War status that the country suddenly found itself in. It was a scary time. I was a kid in the 50s, so I I remember lying awake in bed after seeing a movie like Earth vs. Flying Saucers, or any of them, really, and all it really did was trigger other concerns. And concerns, I think, in a young mind, tend to multiply the more you dwell on them. So these films, you know, really kind of had a... um, a strange effect on audiences, young and old. And today, I think they're seen more uh, from a, a sense of great aesthetics, uh, from a from a, a purely an observational sense, like a film appreciation thing. You can derive a tremendous amount of stimulation from these films because they are exciting and they're fun to watch, but they're also really serious, you know, and not to be mocked. Well, like you said, pop culture and big studio Hollywood productions were really papering over some of the rifts in society in the in the 50s but it was yeah it was up to the low budget people to come out with say biker movies you know you had mm-hmm. uh you had world war ii vets who never reintegrated back into american society you know they became uh the the hell's angels you know the the, the myth makers didn't want you to know that these folks in the <laughs> pacific theater were so damaged right. that, that 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 this was going on juvenile delinquency and things like that it this was definitely the province of the B-movies and the so-called exploitation films. Well, those so-called exploitation films of the late 60s that kind of came out of the Vietnam era were definitely an outgrowth of the subversive cinema that was taking place in the 50s. Uh, The difference, I think the main difference is the films of the 50s were coming out from major studios. They may have been B-pictures, and they may have utilized a much smaller budget, but they were still coming from studios like Fox and Paramount and the, and the others, as opposed to Roger Corman-style studios and companies that were basically designed to create low-budget exploitation entertainment. These films in the 50s were rubbing shoulders with Kim Novak movies, and, and people were just sort of seeing everything in mass. So they weren't, they weren't making the types of distinctions that people make today. Everything was just a movie. It was just a Hollywood movie. And if you were snookered into seeing something subversive, so much the better. So let's talk about some of the themes that are running <laughs> through the films that, that you're going to be playing. Um, obviously, in the 50s, there was the space race that was starting between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Um, there was talk about peaceful nukes and better living through chemistry. And, uh, you know, there were... there were... Fallacies all. Right. <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting because you would think in the early 50s when, when Hollywood started uh, investigating the idea of um, intergalactic travel, you might say, well, think, well, wouldn't it be great if some wonderful, friendly aliens came down to Earth and they shared all their brilliance and their, all their innovative things? And no, no, that's not what Hollywood wants. They wanted to make it creepy and scary and menacing. So really what that serves to do is it kind of fills people with a sense of dread. It's like, well, yeah, I had been looking forward to aliens coming, but now I'm not so sure. Uh, because what I see in the movies kind of tells me that they're really out here to take over our planet and kill us, you know, and turn us into, you know, food for them for themselves. And so that, that filled people with not only a curiosity, but a fearful curiosity. They wanted to see what might happen. They just didn't want to have to experience in reality. So a lot of it sort of subconsciously or subversively implanted feelings of negative feelings about aliens or foreigners, people who were clearly different. And it put up this sort of invisible barrier uh, between 
us and them. It became, it became an us versus them world in terms of science fiction. It's like, God, we cannot afford to be friendly to these people because they're going to take us over. You know, their planet is overcrowded or maybe it's infected with some space disease. You know, they're looking for a new home, you know, to populate. And we got to be careful. So it, I think it did make people more concerned. And that extended over into domestic concerns. So you might be able to say, well, yes, it's not that far removed from immigration issues. You know, if says, I don't want people from this country in my country. Say, so, well, why? Are they going to like kill your children? Are they going to burn down your, your buildings? I mean, what are they going to do? They don't have laser rays or anything. They're just people. But nevertheless, there's that whole feeling of difference is not good. Different is bad. And it sets up this whole sense of expectation, and it's all negative. But it's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, you, you're a Rod Serling fan, and you know the Twilight Zone episodes when that show came around. Um, that was really expert at couching these issues of the alien races in uh, science fiction and uh, the 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 paranoias that we had, the dreads and the xenophobia that we had um, by making this you know by making the other into something right. that's uh that's that's not so familiar exactly and twilight zone which is the perfect um correlation is the is the absolute outgrowth of these science fiction films uh twilight zone premiered on television at the end of 1959 so it's essentially greeting the whole decade of the 60s with sort of a reinvented idea of what popular entertainment along these lines could represent so yeah those those twilight zone stories are bitter pills to take because they're showing people the dark side of what more or less take for granted or just generally don't like to think about at all um, consequences of whatever, you know, not believing in something or being unaware of what might be lurking behind the stars. Uh, it kind of reawakened people. If they felt, if audiences felt that a country was able to perfect nuclear power and turn it into weaponry, what would lie beyond that? What would be a, a, a next phase beyond that? And that, I think, was terrifying to certain people. Other people just probably made them feel more confident or comfortable. So, well, you know, Eisenhower will take care of it. You know, I'm not going to worry about it. But I think most people said, no, this is something I'd rather not think about. And guys like Rod Serling were imaginative and brilliant enough to turn this into entertainment. Um, dark entertainment, but entertainment nonetheless, a direct descendant from these films. So uh, you talk about how people sometimes laugh at the, what it seems to us now is cheesy special effects, and which seems uh, to me a little bit of digital chauvinism. Um, but um, what... You know, obviously, uh, obviously the effects studios weren't as sophisticated as they are nowadays, but, you know, you believe, obviously, that these movies have messages for us nowadays in the 21st century. And you, you even hear tropes and, and phrases from these films in popular society. Somebody will say, oh, you know, Fox News or talk radio turned my dad into a pod person. Yeah. That's straight out of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, and that is probably one of the most interesting correlations that the world of science fiction films from this period has it, uh, for people of today. Uh, that has so become ingrained into the pop jargon. Um, you hear it all the time. And it really is uh, another way of saying you have become identified with the masses. You are now 
now a lemming. You are following orders. You are now, you know, you are now, you now belong to us. And uh, that is the underlying message of that film, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is probably, um, I would say, of the films uh, I'm using in this course, probably the one that has survived the longest in terms of its reputation as a great cult film. Uh, it, it just gets better and better and more relevant. Uh, each time we see it. And of course, it relies very little on special effects. I mean, there's the pods themselves. But beyond that, it's really sort of like a domestic story. Uh-huh. It, it's, I mean, it takes place, all the films actually take place on Earth in present day. And that, to me, is a big part of the appeal of these films. You know, they're not set on some distant planet, which is kind of nonsense, really. The familiar <laughs> is, is, is the terrifying. So right. uh, the film, the, the course is uh, the... Um, uh, Cold War Shivers, sci-fi scare films of the 1950s. It's playing at Cinema 21 as part of the Oregon State University continuing education. How do people find out more? Well, one way they can do it, they could go to the Cinema 21 uh, website, cinema21.com. Uh, there will be information um, about the class, uh, also with information as to how to enroll um, and I would strongly urge people to check it out. It's going to be a lot of fun. Great way to spend the summer. Well, thank you again, Elliot Levine. Uh, Great to have you in the studio, as always. That just about wraps it up for this month's edition of The Film Show on KBU. I'm S.W. Conser. Thanks to our guests today, Maria Allred, Damian Girardi, and Elliot Levine. Thanks also to the Oregon Media Production Association for their support and collaboration. And thanks to all our listeners on the media dial and on the web. The audio for the show will be available later today on our archive page, kboo.fm slash thefilmshow. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at KBOO Film Show. Now stay tuned for an afternoon of music on your homegrown Portland radio station. I am your control.